0: Dr. Saval is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome
1: to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded Tuesday, August 8th, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. The Society of Critical Care Medicine now is conducting a survey of its podcast listeners. Please visit www.sccm.org slash podcast to take the survey, and you will automatically be entered to win an iPod Nano. Share your thoughts so we can continue to tailor quality podcasts to your needs. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Douglas White, M.D. He will be speaking with us about the results of his recently published article in the August issue of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which was Decisions to Limit Life-Sustaining Treatment for Critically Ill Patients Who Lack Both Decision-Making Capacity and Surrogate Decision-Makers. Dr. White is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. The reference for this particular article is Critical Care Medicine, volume 34, number 8, pages 2053 to 2059. And uh, I apologize, Dr. White, you are also in their ethics division or department, if you could uh, clarify that. I apologize.
2: That's right, the Program in Medical Ethics at UCSF. Um,
1: as you and I were discussing previously and when I was reading to prepare this article, this was an article I very much chose that I wanted to discuss. And the only word I came up with was daring. It really was sort of breaking the mold, looking at uh, topics that most uh, clinicians don't really want to discuss. And um, I was wondering, uh, it looked like it was an extraordinarily challenging study to perform. So why don't we let you talk for a few minutes about uh, how you came up with the study and some of the challenges?
2: Yeah, thanks for the kind words. Uh, the study really came out of uh, Ten years of both clinical practice uh, on the part of the co-authors, but also two interesting studies, Uh, one published by uh, Paul Lankin and David Ash in 1995. Uh, This was a survey of doctors practicing in intensive care units. One of the questions they asked the the survey participants was, have you withdrawn mechanical ventilation in a patient uh, who is incapacitated and doesn't have a surrogate? And they found that a third of physicians practicing in intensive care units answered yes to that question. So this previously unrecognized uh, ethical dilemma uh, appears to be something that that comes up not not infrequently. And then the other thing that uh, that spurred the study on was uh, a paper that John Luce, one of the co-authors, wrote, published in Critical, Critical Care Medicine in 2002. And this was really a, descripti- a descriptive account of decision-making for three patients who lacked decision-making capacity and surrogates. And in the, in the paper, John Luce really detailed the uh, emotional and ethical difficulties the physicians encountered in trying to figure out uh, really what is right, uh, what, what's the right approach, and what are the right decisions to make for people uh, who can't speak for themselves in the ICU or in, and are close to dying. Yeah, that, that's really the, the rationale for the study uh, is that these two, these two prior works suggested that, boy, you know, this may be a common issue in ICUs, and we really don't know anything about how doctors make these decisions. There were a number of difficulties in designing a study to address a population that is, by definition, not consentable that the patient can't give informed consent and there's no one to give informed consent for them. That's not an insurmountable barrier. Most institutional review boards will waiver will give a waiver of informed consent for studies where it's not feasible to to gain written informed consent. But the larger issue with this study is that we really wanted to give physicians as much as possible the guarantee that their responses could not be used against them in the future. Because this is a fairly legally uncertain terrain uh, and also ethically challenging, we wanted to protect physicians in every way possible and also communicate to them that, that this pr- protection is in place with the hope that they would report their actual practice as opposed to something that's closer to what may be perceived as socially desirable.
1: Uh, um, and I guess I guess the, the big problem then is, is when people are being watched, and you mentioned this in your article, when people are being observed, they may be changing their behavior, right? That was one of the concerns.
2: Yes, that's right. It's certainly a possibility here. You can only do as much as you can do to to guarantee or to allay people's concerns, to allow them to answer freely. And the things that we did, we actually went to great lengths, uh, both from making the survey anonymous to not performing chart review, finally, to getting a certificate of confidentiality from the National Institutes of Health. And basically, this is a document that allows us as investigators to refuse to turn over study records if there is a, a legal inquiry into the behavior, uh, either from a, a governing body or, or another organization. And our hope is that the the combination of these three things was enough to allow physicians comfort in, uh, in answering freely and honestly. We certainly can't guarantee that, that that is the case, but I think the fact that the results were so different from what professional societies recommend that we feel confident that physicians were answering, honestly.
1: Um, It must have been a very uh, difficult decision to say that you weren't going to be able to do chart review, as I would imagine a significant amount of information that you would have wanted uh, you weren't able to get. Can you talk about that for a little bit?
2: That's right. It it was a difficult decision. Because this is the first study of this, of this kind, we really felt like we wanted to first determine, one, is this an issue that comes up commonly in intensive care units are there are there patients who exist in the ICU who don't have capacity and don't have surrogates and if so what proportion of patients so that was that simple first question we wanted to answer and then the second was well how do doctors make decisions for these patients now the third question which strikes me as the downstream question that's also very important is the harder one to answer and that is were the decisions made correct and i think one of the take home points from this study is that we provide no information about the correctness of the decisions. That wasn't the purpose of the study. What we studied was the incidence of patients like this in the ICU and how the decisions were made. You're right that uh, the idea that gaining information about the patients, their severity of illness, their other comorbidities would be valuable in at least getting a sense for uh, were the decisions correct. But we felt that for the first study, we really needed to answer the the epidemiological questions of does it happen and does, does it occur? Do these patients uh, exist in ICUs and how are decisions made?
1: And before we go into the the results, which we'll do next, you know, you you said the word correct, and uh, as you talk about in your discussion, uh, the 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 problem is because this is often going into personal. Uh, opinions or personal biases, that there may not be consensus uh, if you had 10 critical care doctors about what the right way to proceed would be in some of these situations, correct?
2: That's entirely correct. And I, th- I think one of the most important, it is one of the most important things to, to say about this study and about this patient population. You know, imagine if you have a patient in an ICU bed, you don't have any prior information about them or their values, Um and they're unable to, to fill that information in for you, nor do they have family or friends who can do it, uh, truly knowing what they would want in the situation they're in is, is not possible.
1: And in terms of your results, and again, because this paper is uh, very, very bold and and daring, the the, the results themselves are not sort of the routine kinds of results. The first thing you looked at in your figure one was the percentage of patients who met the criteria. And and if I'm interpreting this correctly, it was 24% initially met the issue of lacking decision-making capacity and not having a surrogate uh, at admission. Is that correct? That's right. And then it seems like 17 patients and then another 5 patients ended up gaining either one or the other, leaving a total of 16% of the initial patients remaining without capacity and without a surrogate throughout the course of their uh, ICU stay. That's right. And these were the patients that you focused in on in terms of how uh, decisions were made for them, correct? Right.
2: I think, you know, I I think simply these proportions are uh, important to look at. One in four patients that came into this ICU lacked decision-making capacity in a surrogate. That's a not insubstantial number. And I think the other part that I I was somewhat surprised by is that of these 72 patients, actually only five of the patients eventually had a surrogate found during the hospitalization. This is not for lack of looking. Uh, The institution in question has a very active and well-trained social work team that it goes to great lengths to track down family members, and, and it really, the patients who didn't have a family member during the first couple of days uh, generally didn't have one for the rest of the hospitalization.
1: So this population That's, is skewed towards some of these people just genuinely not having a support network.
2: It's it's a fairly vulnerable population. While we didn't collect this information in the study, anecdotally, uh, a number were homeless or uh, without any family and basically lived in the community in isolation. So they really were a, a fairly vulnerable population.
1: I wanted to take a uh, as a next step just to for the listeners to go to figure two and, and just a couple of questions there. So we've got these 49 patients without capacity and without a surrogate. And then uh, the next issue is that in 18 patients, a DNR order was considered. Um, one might naively ask right off the bat, why would one consider a DNR order in a patient like this? And I'm sure that this was uh, something you have a, an opinion on.
2: This is this is speculation beyond what we have from the data. Uh, the data are that the physicians used a number of criteria uh, in determining whether to write a DNR, including dominantly prognosis for either survival or return of function or quality of life but beyond that it's 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 not clear that physicians are using any different criteria for these patients than they do for every other patient that comes in the ICU and this does really circle back to the idea of uh, correctness of the decisions and and we really just we don't have much to say about whether the decisions were correct.
1: Well, let's let me jump in there for a second, because I know that uh, you and I were speaking before, and that I, I was in California, and now I'm in New York. One of the points that you brought up in your discussion was how state-specific this issue can be.
2: There's considerable heterogeneity in state law, uh, and I, it's something that I find interesting that uh, the state laws are are so widely uh, differing. Or non-existent in the case of California law for example in the, the state in which I practice uh, there is not a law addressing whether these decisions how, how these decisions should be made or whether they can even be made in your state dr. Savell New York there there are laws in particular for DNR orders physicians can issue a DNR order in patients without surrogates who also don't have capacity if the, the physician if the attending physician feels that further treatment would be medically futile and another physician agrees in writing. The law doesn't go on to define medical futility, so that's somewhat a gray zone, as, as futility often is in, in medicine. But what it does go on to say is if it's not futile, according to whatever definition they put forward, then court involvement is needed. So New York State DNR orders are, uh, often require court input, about the larger issue of whether treatment can be withdrawn. In, in New York State, the, uh, the standard is that clear and convincing evidence is required in order to withdraw life support. Uh, and that is a very high evidentiary standard that, in general, can't be met without information about the patient. In fact, it seems almost impossible to meet that standard if the patient can't speak for himself and there's no one else who can represent the patient's interests.
1: What I thought we might do next is let you take us uh, through figure two and then share with us some of the things that you learned from the results of this important study.
2: So figure two, this is the 49 patients who throughout their hospital course lacked decision-making capacity and a surrogate. And the first branch point is, was there any consideration of writing a DNR order? And we see that in 31, there was no consideration at all. Uh, and that in 18, the physicians at least considered writing a DNR order. And what what I found interesting about this next branch point going from those 18 patients, uh, in five, no DNR order was written. And when we asked the physicians as part of the survey, why not, their answers ranged from things as mundane as, well, the patient got better and it wasn't medically appropriate, to there was intractable disagreement between members of the team or between consultants or if they got an ethics committee involved between the ethics committee and the, and the primary team. And then of the 13 patients in whom a DNR order was written, the physicians went on to withdraw life support in eight and continue it in five. What we found is not surprisingly in all patients in whom life support was withdrawn, death occurred. And in patients in whom life support was continued, it, it was less frequent that they that they died. In fact, only one of five Again, you know, I have to say that I'm not sure you can make any generalizations from what happened to the patients about the correctness of the decision. Uh, It it really revolves heavily around the values of the patient uh, vis-à-vis the prognosis. So whether patients lived or died uh, and whether uh, life support was or wasn't withdrawn, I'm I'm just not sure it, it helps us. In this third question that we didn't address in the study, which is were the decisions correct,
1: so you mentioned the ethics committee, and I was wondering, did that come up frequently, or was that not something that was recorded or um
2: what we found is that in only one case was the ethics committee involved, and there are a number of reasons why this may be the case. It may be that the physicians who practice in the intensive care unit are so have become so accustomed to making this decision. That they they feel like they have a routine for it, and and therefore don't need more input. The institution in question did not have a policy about how to make these decisions, so it may be that the physicians simply didn't didn't know what to to do or who to involve, or uh, it could be that the that the ethics committee was perceived as uh, as not not valuable. and And I I think it's important to note we we don't know the answer to why. Uh, physicians didn't involve ethics committees. But uh, I do find it uh, interesting that that the ethics committee wasn't more involved.
1: I thought I'd... um comment here in your discussion section and quote a, a few of your points and let you make some points on those if you'd, if you'd like. Sure. Um, you state here, you know, the current study adds several important pieces of knowledge to our understanding of decision making for this population. First, patients without surrogates are encountered in the ICU. One in six patients admitted to this medical ICU remained incapacitated and without surrogate during their entire ICU stay.
2: It is an odd thing to have uh, one of the main findings from a study be a simple proportion of how often patients without surrogates uh, were encountered in the ICU, but it is new and important information, I think. The caveat is that this is a single-center study. The results may not be generalizable, but anytime you're seeing one in four or one in six patients not having anyone to represent their interests uh, who knows them, it it really fundamentally calls into question our ability to make patient centered or autonomous or, or decisions that respect the autonomy of patients in the ICU. And for that reason I think it, it actually was really important to to document this.
1: It or it's a reasonable approach in the critically ill patient to be coordinating closely with families and patients when possible. And one of the points of your paper here is that entire part of the equation is removed in situations like this.
2: Yeah. It's just it's just gone. It really it reverts us back to a a model of decision making that is not a, by definition not patient centered or at least not centered on the values of the patient it can be the decision making process can be centered on their disease physiology uh, how how ill they are how many organs do they have down what what do we think their chances for surviving are but what we can't do is say so for example a patient with a severe neurologic injury uh, who is has a high probability of winding up in a uh, either a minimally conscious state or or persistent vegetative state? For patients like this, we're unable to say what do we know about this person, and can we, from that information about their values, can we predict whether they would? Uh, accept continuing living with severe neurologic injury, or whether that would be a state worse than death.
1: Well, if I could, I'd like to read, uh, I had sort of three sentences from your discussion that are underlined that really... Uh, Summarize that nicely to trigger some discussion points. Sure. So physicians based these decisions predominantly on the patient's chances to survive the hospitalization, but also on more subjective criteria, such as the patient's anticipated quality of life, their own perceptions of what was in the patient's best interest, and concerns about appropriate resource allocation resource allocation. Prior studies suggest that some of these criteria may be problematic. First, there's evidence that physicians' ratings of patients' quality of life are systematically lower than their own. And second, that physicians often project their own treatment preferences onto their patients. And the next part I thought was very important, that many of the patients cared for in the study ICU are homeless or marginally housed, and these patients tend to prefer more aggressive, life-sustaining treatment than physicians. These studies suggest that physicians may not be well-positioned to independently decide when to limit life-sustaining treatment if the decision is based on value judgments about quality of life.
2: That's the touchiest, I think, part of the discussion, and it was the hardest for us to write because our sense is that these physicians were doing the best they could and were really acting in what they felt was the patient's best interest. We really have have no desire to criticize the physicians who were involved in this study they they were doing uh, the hardest work that physicians can do making decisions with very little guidance from anyone and, and really having to rely on their own on their own wits uh, to make these these extremely difficult end of life decisions so we were we were very sympathetic to their to their difficult situation you know it is interesting that that as a group physicians really prefer less aggressive treatment at the end of life if they're, specifically the studies have have demonstrated that uh, if there's a uh, probability of neurologic impairment, that physicians really tend to choose less aggressive interventions than uh, patients, particularly patients with respiratory failure. And then also the the recent study by Randy Curtis and colleagues uh, that they also that homeless individuals prefer much more aggressive treatment than, than physicians when facing neurologic impairment. I think the caution is simply that, that if we use only our own internal moral compass, and that can truly come from a good spot in the clinician's heart when trying to make decisions, our moral compass may be slightly different from the patients for whom we're making decisions. And uh, even with the best intentions, it can lead to decisions that the patients might not make for themselves. It's, it's simply a caution, uh, and I, I think it, it speaks to the, the need and appropriateness to, to bounce these decisions off a number of different people, preferably with different life experiences and training.
1: Well, if I, if I could, I just wanted to, the end of one of your other paragraphs summarizes this topic very well also, and I just wanted to share it with the listeners. Additionally, a number of studies have documented that physicians vary widely in their beliefs about when it is appropriate to limit life-sustaining treatment for critically ill patients. These studies suggest that in the absence of input from the patient or the patient's surrogate, Reliance on physicians as decision makers may result in similarly situated patients receiving different levels of treatment again, reemphasizing your previous point about that physicians are people and that there will be wide varieties of approaches to these situations and the The point of this paper or one of the points of this paper is just to point that out correct yeah,
2: that's right that's right and i I think this is actually I think one of the most interesting things about the the population under study. The normal process of decision-making absolutely allows physicians to have their opinions. They're, they're, they're essential uh, if you believe in the shared model of decision-making. The physician should uh, hear the situation, gather the values of the patient, and then give his or her recommendation based on uh, his, understand, his or her understanding of the medical condition and also the patient's values. But this breaks down when there's no one to represent the patient's values. All you're left with is a physician who takes his or her prior belief system, looks at the patient's prognosis and their medical condition, and and that's all they have to go on is, is their own experience and opinion without any real ability to glean information about specific patient values or beliefs that would frame which decision is appropriate. And it's just a it's a fundamentally difficult situation it it's it's absolutely different from how we make decisions for other patients uh, the the shared model of decision making is obviously out the window uh, and I, my heart goes out to physicians who have to make this decision it's just it's incredibly difficult and
1: well one of one of my uh, one of my interpretations uh, of your paper as sort of a big take home point and correct me if i'm wrong is that a structured institutional approach to patients like this would potentially be a more rational approach than uh, leaving the burden of it with the individual clinician or 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 some uh, form like that
2: there are there are a lot of different ways to approach the procedure of making these decisions and i, I think it's important to to look at both the upsides and the downsides of of each approach So what you raised, this idea of a structured uh, hospital-based procedure has, has clear, attractive features. It involves other individuals, presumably with a diverse set of values. These are also individuals who aren't directly involved in the care of the patient, so may have a more objective view of the whole medical picture. And also the fact that it's based at the hospital as opposed to being situated in the legal system allows decisions to be made on a more rapid basis. And that is one of the real issues with these decisions is, can you get input from other individuals in a timely enough manner that decision-making can proceed? And the courts are are very difficult in that regard. So you do gain speed. You gain diverse input. But the question is, is it is the input diverse enough? Can the group meet and provide objective input Quickly enough, and, and do they have the training, uh, the appropriate training, to, to give informed advice on this topic? We know from other studies that ethics committee training uh, is highly variable across the country, so it certainly raises the concern that the hospital committee, in whatever form it, it takes, uh, may not, as a, as a rule, have the training to, to answer these very difficult ethical and legal questions.
1: But again, as you pointed out, it would be providing uh, multiple life perspectives on on a complex situation, right?
2: One of the things that's unknown is, would the decisions reached by these committees be any different from the decisions that the doctors make? It's a a testable, I guess, question, and important in its own right. But also, I think, how you make decisions for vulnerable patients is also important from the standpoint of public perception of fairness. Uh, I think the public opinion probably would favor uh having a more open transparent process of decision making that involves numerous people with diverse life input even if at the end of the day the decision made was the same
1: so in Our this case the mind. process being as important as that's the right. final that, outcome
2: that's right that and, and the, the simple idea there is 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 just that that the that the process of decision making becomes incredibly important when you can have no guarantee that the actual decision you're going to make will be correct.
1: Well, you've obviously done just an absolutely tremendous amount of work putting this all together, and I just sort of wanted to end with giving you the opportunity to share some sort of encapsulated either take-home points that you learned putting this all together, or any changes in your clinical practice, or perhaps the institution uh, institutional level with the results of this important study.
2: You know, I think in the course of conducting this study I, I became much more attuned to the idea that, uh, that 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 there's often not a right answer to the to these cases and that they're they're incredibly difficult cases the physicians do their best job and at the end of the day sometimes you walk away not knowing if you made the right decision and for me uh, where that led me was to the idea that there's there's comfort in consultation uh, and whether or not that's that's appropriate. I think each indi- individual needs to decide, but, but because there's such heterogeneity in, in belief and value systems, I think there's something to be said for the input of a diverse group in these decisions. Uh, there are certainly minuses to that approach, as there are to all of them. Uh, f- for example, involving the courts uh, gives you the maximal procedural fairness, hopefully, but it really comes at a cost we we know that courts can't be mobilized on the order of days, so it creates a situation where these patients can uh languish for weeks or months in an intensive care unit uh when a similarly situated patient who did have a surrogate may have had life support withdrawn and a focus on palliative care many weeks earlier. I think you know I think one of the other things that struck me as I uh worked on the discussion for this paper is that is the observation that the vast majority of patients who die in an intensive care unit have life support withdrawn ultimately? And I think when we when we make decisions for these patients, that's also, that's something that's important to keep in mind. We 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 clearly don't want to be withdrawing life support in patients who don't want life support withdrawn. But it, many would say it's equally bad to continue life support in someone who would prefer to have it withdrawn. And we know, from a basically an epidemiological perspective, that that the vast majority of patients don't want to die with every intervention uh, on them at the end of life. So I, I also think about that when when I am encountering and making decisions for patients like this.
1: Well, Dr. White, you've uh, you're tackling the big problems, and tackling the big problems is, by definition, difficult. And the uh, critical care community is benefiting from studies like this. Today, we've been speaking with Dr. Douglas White. He's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center, and we've been discussing his important article recently published in Critical Care Medicine entitled Decisions to Limit Life-Sustaining Treatment for Critically Ill Patients Who Lack Both Decision-Making Capacity and Surrogate Decision-Makers. Thank you so much, Dr. White, for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, August 8th, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening.
0: The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling one. 1- or visiting www.sccm.org.